So in the first reading, you heard about the power of dreams. And in our reading from Matthew's Gospel, we hear about the dream that Joseph had as he was part of God's plan of salvation. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way when his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife. But he had no marital relations with her until she had born a son, and he named him Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Amen. So for those of you who weren't able to be here last week, we have entered the holy season of Advent. This is the second Sunday of four Sundays that Christians around the world use to not just mark time, but to enter more fully into uh, this holy holy season and this uh, promise fulfilled of the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Savior. Advent means arrival, and we certainly during Advent look back over our shoulders at the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah, the Christos, the Anointed One. But Advent also means appearance. And so we think on and give thanks to God for our Lord's first appearance as the babe of Bethlehem. But this babe of Bethlehem is now a king of kings and lord of lords, and he sits on a throne, and he will appear again at the end of human history. So we mark his first appearance, but we await in eager anticipation his second appearance. That's what Christians do. Our meditation last week was on John the Baptist, from whom we have much to learn. And though John wasn't present at the first Christmas, uh, he plays a very critical role in God's plan of salvation. If you missed that sermon, it's on our church website. You can listen to it at your convenience this week. I think that you should if you weren't here last week, because Jesus said, of all the people who've ever lived in the human race, there's none greater than John the Baptist. So it makes sense to meditate and think on his life and his witness. And John the Baptist has everything to do with reminding us to prepare the way of the Lord. We now shift our focus and our meditation this morning to Joseph. We don't know a lot about Joseph beyond what the scriptures tell us, but in the few times that he's mentioned in the New Testament, uh, there is more than enough uh, from which we can learn and that we might ponder this Holy Advent season. We are told, because of what the angel said, that Joseph was afraid. And no wonder. Everything that he thought he knew had just changed. His world had been rocked. And he did not think these changes 
or for the better, at least initially. He had decided, he had resolved, he'd made up his mind to not take Mary as his wife. Why? You heard it. Because she's pregnant. And he knows that the child in her womb is not his own. So Joseph planned to end this betrothal quietly, discreetly, even as honorably as he could without bringing additional shame to the pregnant Mary because she already had enough shame in that small town. He must have been thinking what any other man would have been thinking. My sweetheart, my beloved, my fiancé, my future wife has been unfaithful. But having learned God's plan in a dream, Joseph changes his mind, and he changes his mind because his heart is changed. And I believe that all of us, men and women, young and old, can learn from Joseph's example of discipleship. First of all, Joseph was obedient. We have our plans. Yes, we do. You've got yours and I've got mine. And the Lord of all creation has his plans. And for Christians, it's imperative that we take a step back and ask of ourselves and reflect on this. Are our plans, our desires, our hopes, are they in alignment with God's? For God's plans, you see, are always greater. Joseph's plan had to conform to God's greater plan. It had been his hope. It had been his dream. It had been his plan to get married, have some kids, perhaps teach them the family trade of carpentry, and maybe one day they could take over the carpenter shop, and Mary and I can enjoy some lazy days on the Galilean seashore. Whatever plans were Joseph's, they all changed. And they changed because Joseph chose to obey God. And in that obedience, he became responsible for the well-being of Mary and the soon-to-be-born infant Jesus, to be sure. But he had responsibilities to Mary and Jesus because he was, first of all, responsible to God. Some of you know this. Later in this very same gospel, you can read about Joseph having to take Mary and the infant Jesus all the way to Egypt because he had another dream. And in this dream, he was warned that King Herod was going to try and kill Jesus. I mean, there was danger from the get-go. And historians disagree, but whether it's the few two to three months they spent in exile in Egypt or as much as the two or three years that some historians think they were away. You imagine that. You think about that. Leaving your home, leaving your business, leaving everything comfortable and familiar to you behind in order to obey God. You and I are responsible for many things and for many people. But we 
think on and carry out that responsibility because the one to whom we are ultimately responsible. So if you happen to be married, then you are responsible for many things in your marriage. You have responsibilities to care for your husband, for your wife, that no one else can or should even attempt to fulfill. At the same time, you are ultimately responsible to God. And it's taken me a long time to learn this, but it's only when I look at my wife as a daughter of the living God that I can begin to love her in such a way that God is glorified. If you're single, you can learn from Joseph as well because you single people or those of you who are widows and widowers, you certainly have hopes and dreams of your own for future years. And as you think about where you want to be and what you want to be doing five, ten years down the road, you remember the God who goes with you, the God who's been with you thus far, the God who was willing to die in your place, and in the choices that you make, that we all make. Let's remember our responsibility to God. And this responsibility that comes from obedience is related to a second attribute that we see in Joseph and that is his willingness to trust. Not everyone likes to be in charge. There are a few people who like to just sit in the back and not be noticed. But most of the people I've met in this community would prefer to be in charge. Real men are supposed to be the go-getter, take the lead, get her done kind of people. And most men, not all, but most of the men I know would rather give orders than have someone order them around. Unless you think I'm sexist, there are plenty of women in our congregation who like to be in command as well, but I'm not going to name them in the pulpit today. (laughs) Those of us, male and female, who prefer being in charge, need to remember that whatever responsibility we have, whatever authority we have, whatever choices that are ours to make, especially when they impact and affect others, we need to remember that we are accountable to God who is ultimately in charge. And we are called to trust the Lord and entrust ourselves to his grace and mercy. You think again about Joseph. What kind of thoughts might have been racing through his head? First of all, he finds out that his wife's pregnant. And he's not assuming the best. And then he receives this message on top of the shock and dismay of his pregnant fiancée. Oh, and by the way, the child in her womb, he's going to be the savior of the world. You think Joseph might have been asking, why me? Why not someone else? Whatever doubts or misgivings or disbelief he might have had initially gave way to his willingness to trust in the Lord. Joseph trusted God. And trust is not an easy thing for many of us. For a whole host of reasons. Some of us were taught by our parents at an early age not to trust. Some of us were taught at an early age you don't rely on anyone else. People will just let you down. And some of us were taught that lesson in such the way that it even led us to doubt we can trust God. 
And for some of us, it wasn't so much what our parents said, but what they did, or others in our lives where we don't want to trust anyone because we've been hurt, we've been betrayed, and we don't want to risk trusting anyone or anything ever again because you just get disappointed. But God is there saying, you can trust in me. I'm no liar. I'm with you always in sickness and in health. I was there when you were created in your mother's womb, and when you breathe your last breath, I'll be there to take you home. When was the last time you asked God to increase your trust in his lordship? This is my confession to you. When I'm facing some of the most difficult tasks and the most challenging situations that come my way, I initially act as if everything depends on me and my strength and my wisdom and my skill sets. And then, most of the time, those are quite lacking. And then I pray when I should have been praying from the start, right? I'll never forget a faithful woman in our congregation who was with her dying husband in ICU. Uh, She was there 24-7, sleeping on the couch at night, refusing to go home to shower, to do anything. She was going to be with her husband to the end. And he had been declining steadily. And the doctor came in when I was there visiting and praying with them. And he said to her, I'm sorry, ma'am, we've done our best. Your husband's simply not responding to treatment. All we can do now is pray. And she said, in the strength of her years and her wisdom. Actually, doctor, I've been praying for my husband since he came into your hospital. And I've been praying for you. And she went on to tell that young physician something that maybe he never learned from his parents and certainly wasn't taught in med school, that prayer is not the last thing, but it is the first thing that believers do. And it's what we do continuously, whether we live or whether we die, we pray. And then Joseph sets an example for us that's not in the verses today, but in those other witnesses to his role in the birth of Jesus and the life that he had growing up there in Nazareth. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes to the synagogue back home in Nazareth, as was his custom. How did this regular weekly worship come to be the custom of Jesus? No doubt by the example of his parents. The Bible even tells us that Joseph, every year, took Mary and Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem for Passover. And please don't think that was some wonderful getaway, some holiday, some you know, wonderful adventure. This was a dangerous trek. Uh, there were bandits waiting to come down on and rob those making the pilgrimage to the holy city. But that's what Joseph did. He was a man who worshipped God. Men are called to be an example to one another if they're men of faith. Not just to their children, but to the world around them. And the same is true for all you sisters in Christ. A man of God worships his heavenly father. A woman of God is called to be faithful in worship. This is one of those parts of a sermon that probably needs to be preached to all the people who aren't here today. I mean, you're here, aren't you? But there are so many people 
Uh, when they're in town, I'm not talking about those of you who have the opportunity to travel and go to second homes and cabins and like to go up and ski on the snowy slopes. I'm talking about when you're in town. There are so many who choose, even when in town, not to worship or to worship only when it suits them and when you feel like it. Where do we hear that in Scripture? And um, in two weeks, I'm no prophet, but I predict in two weeks on Sunday night, our worship will double, if not triple. And I don't want you to worry, I'm not going to scold all the people who finally show up to worship come Christmas Eve. But after 33 years of ministry, I just wonder, why are people drawn to worship the Christ child, but then not to serve the Christ child who was sent to die for them, that they might have life? Faithful, obedient, trusting Christians worship. And they worship even when they don't feel like it. I do. And I'm no hero. I just worship because it's what believers do. And then Joseph gives us an example of stewardship. And don't worry, I'm not going to talk about money. I'll talk about that in January at the annual meeting, okay? Some people think stewardship is just about cash. But stewardship is what we do with our lives, our time. And a steward is someone who simply takes care of and manages that which belongs to another. And Joseph was a fatherly steward taking care of the child who was the son of the father, his adopted son, if you will. Joseph was not in charge of Jesus' ultimate destiny, was he? That was his father in heaven. And the same was true for Mary. They had this critical, holy role to play, a job to do, and they did it faithfully. Love this Jesus, care for him, raise him right, teach him well, and then let him go. And is that not the same for any parent? As Jesus, the adult, emerges in the Gospels, we no longer hear about Joseph. His role, his stewardship had been fulfilled. His adopted son, was doing the ministry that his father in heaven had sent him to do. Joseph could not protect Jesus from the future that awaited him. And we parents know sometimes with tears and heavy hearts that we cannot protect our children forever either. Our stewardship, our ministry, our job, if you will, is to raise them in the faith and then let them go and entrust them to God's love and grace. And I can tell you, that's not always an easy thing, and some of you know this. But we're all stewards, whether we're parents or not. And when was the last time you talked to your nieces, your nephews, your cousins, your grandkids about matters of faith? Uh, Christmas gives you the perfect opportunity as we think on Jesus. And as stewards, we are to care for those around us. And that means when God gives us the time and the opportunity is presented to simply share, not in someone else's words, but in our own vocabulary, our own authentic witness, what God's mercy means to us and why we choose to be Christian, why we choose obedience, trust, and worship in a world that more and more each day, it seems, belittles and mocks such holy and precious things. So when was the last time you 
told someone what Jesus means to you? When was the last time you invited someone at your workplace, your neighborhood, your school, your club, to worship a living God with you? Maybe that's something you should do between now and Christmas Eve. Next week, we're going to focus our hearts and minds on Mary and her role in God's wonderful plan of salvation. And I need to remind all of you who typically worship at 9.30, at this hour next Sunday, our children are going to present the Christmas message. They will be preaching through the Christmas program. If you want to hear the sermon on Mary, well, you can come at 8 and then stay for the Christmas program at 9.30, or come at 9.30 and stay for the service at 11. You have options. We always give you options here at Faith. But we will focus on Mary and then come December 24th in the morning. We're going to remember Jesus, the Word made flesh, um, who left the beauty and the perfection of heaven to enter this uh, sinful, broken world to save it and restore it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.